Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost here with the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. Really excited to have Bob Berg on today. Uh, He has a wealth of experience, tremendous individual, excited to talk about his new book and all of the insights that he has on leadership. Bob is an international speaker on topics related to the go-giver, as well as what he calls genuine influence. In The Go-Giver and its follow-up, The Go-Giver Leader, Bob Berg challenges the conventional wisdom about success. Um, now they're coming back. So him and his partner are coming back with a new and equally compelling story about the power of genuine influence in business and beyond. So the go-giver influencer, a little story about a most persuasive idea tackles the paradox of achieving what you want by focusing on the other person's interests. His total book sales number well over a million copies and his original book itself has sold over 850,000 copies. And it spurred this international kind of movement around influence. So thrilled to have Bob on. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Great to be with you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. It sounds like you have tremendous experience and insight around influence and leadership. Yeah. So I think this the, the word itself is just an interesting word, the word of influence. What is influence? What is Yeah, it? I agree with you because it's one of those words now that is just so used and overused and maybe even abused that that it can be now interpreted so many different ways. People don't exactly know what you're thinking when you when you say the word. So I love to to start with definitions. And I, I think influence has both a, an elementary and then a, a deeper uh, level on a on a very basic level, Kyle. You can define influence as simply the ability to move a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a specific goal. That's that's its definition, but it's by no means its its substance or its essence. The essence of influence is pull pull as opposed to push, as in the age-old question, how far can you push a rope? And the answer is not very far, at least not very fast or very effectively, which is why great influencers, effective influencers, genuine influencers, they, they don't they don't push. You, you never hear someone say, wow, that, that Dave or that Mary, she is so influential. She has a lot of push with people. Mm. No, they, yeah. you'd say she's influential. She has a lot of pull with people. That's what it is. It's, it's pull. It's an attraction. Great influencers attract people. Great leaders attract people first to themselves and only then to their idea. And they do this through pull. Now, how do you do that through pull? What, you know, what, 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 what is it that you do that pulls people toward you? Well, yeah, well, I mean, that's the million dollar question. Right. right. And, you know, I think Dale Carnegie really said it in his in his classic uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I believe this was the underlying premise of his entire book. And it's where he wrote, ultimately, people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. So the genuine influencer, the great influencer, uh, checks themselves to 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 make sure their intent 
is in the right place. So they, they'll ask themselves questions such as, how does what I'm asking this person to do, how does it align with their goals, with their wants, their needs, their desires? How does what I want this other person to do, how does it align with their values? And when asking ourselves these questions thoughtfully, intelligently, um, genuinely, authentically, not as a way to manipulate another human being into doing our will, but as a way of building everyone in the process. Now we've come a lot closer to earning that person's commitment as opposed to trying to depend on some type of compliance, uh, which is right, which, which, you know, even at best, uh, isn't sustainable. And at worst, it doesn't work at all because people will find a way to sabotage what you want. Sure. Well, so it starts, you know, as you're talking about this and, and asking, how does what I'm trying to get personally align or fit with their goals, their intentions, their ambitions? It starts with this assumption that you have a genuine interest and knowledge of what their goals and intentions are. So how do you start with that piece? That's this actual interest in somebody else's goals and intentions. Yeah. Well, uh, that's such a great question because it's not something we just know. It's sometimes something we think think we know, but we really don't. And, you know, in the the, the second uh, principle in, in, in the book, uh, The Go-Giver Influencer, is to step into the other person's shoes. And that sounds easy, right? It's, it sounds, uh, you know, well, we've all heard that saying, right? Step into the other person's shoes. Sounds easy, but it's really not when you think about the fact that most of us have different sized feet. So we literally cannot step into the other person's shoes. Uh, literally, figuratively, we can't step into their heads. We don't know what they're thinking. We tend to, we yeah. think we do because as human beings, uh, we all you know, have a certain belief system, our own set of subjective truths, subjective truths, which doesn't mean it's the truth. It means it's our truth. It's it's a belief, not the truth. And and we have these belief systems that that are formed when we're very young. They're a combination of upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television shows. But here's the thing. We 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 live our lives. Most of us live our lives, Kyle, through a um, through an unconscious operating system believing that we're making these conscious choices and decisions when really we're operating from a premise that was set for us. Now, as human beings, we also tend to think that other people see the world basically the same way we do, which makes intuitive sense. How could it be anything different, right? It's all we know. So we think this person must value what we value. We think that what would make us happy would make them happy. We think that what we would think is a, right, and it's not true. So what we need to do is we need to ask questions. We need to ask questions, and then we need to listen. Not not listen while, you know, in order to speak, right? Not Not being willing to give them their two cents so that we can get in our 10 cents, but listening not only with our ears, but with our eyes, with our posture, with the back of our neck. I mean, really putting our entire being into this because it's only when we understand this, what this other person needs, wants, desires, values, what problem they have that we can solve, how we can, it's only then that we're able to, to then work within that context. 
Yeah. Well, so as you're as you're talking about all this, a, a few things came to mind, and I 100 percent agree with you. This idea of kind of our own subjective reality and projecting that onto other people. One of the quotes that I use often, and he wasn't the only one to say it, but uh, Stephen R. Covey said, "We don't see the world as it is; we see the world as we sure, are." Sure, sure. So you know, our our eyes aren't just this receptacle; they don't just receive information; they're actually projecting right. who we are onto these scenarios and situations. And to your point, we don't all wear the same shoe size, and we can't project my experience into someone else's life and say that that's what exactly. their experience is. Exactly. Well, and then you said the other thing that I I think, you know, one of the things about all of these things like influence and leadership and strategy and stuff that can seem really complex is at the end of the day, it's often the simplest things. And so you said, look, it starts with asking good questions and then not listening to respond, because if you're listening to respond, you're not really listening. Um, And it reminded me of, of, uh, tool or a tactic that I've used with leaders and I call it the three to one rule. And so when I have leaders that are struggling with interacting with their people, struggling with understanding how their employees are uh, receiving information and why they're struggling to do the job or why they're struggling to work well with others, I give them the three to one rule and I say, okay, for the next week, here's the rule. Anytime you're having a conversation with one of your people, you have to ask three questions before you make one statement. Mm -hmm. Mm. And it's this actual task that we go through. And so for a week, they follow this rule that before they make a statement, they have to ask three questions. And the kind of insights that come out of that are amazing simply because of, like you said, starting by asking more questions and actually listening. No doubt. That's great advice you're giving them. Well, so if if I'm a leader and I want to have influence. I want to be this person deep down that is pulling people, not pushing them. And yet I've built up this pattern and this habit of trying to push people, of being focused on compliance. Where does that shift start for me? Well, I think like anything else, it begins with understanding that the way you're doing it right now isn't working for you, or at least isn't working to the degree that you'd like it to. Because let's face it, if someone was one of these leaders that that they ruled by compliance, right? Uh, And let's Uh, face it, you can move people to a certain extent through compliance. uh, And you can be very much fooled into thinking that's the right way to do it because you're seeing some results. So, you know, if you say to a person, well, okay, so, uh, you know, the the old Dr. Phil question, the how's it working for you? But of course, saying it in a, you know, a nicer way, but, and the person says, well, actually, you know, this compliance, it's working out pretty well. This command and control. Yeah, it works for me. Well, I doubt that person's going to change because they don't see a need to change. So I think the person first has to, and that's where, you know, it's building up that, that trust between you and that person to help them see where, yes, while you, you know, you're very talented, you have a lot of things going for you. May I, you know, share with you a couple of thoughts that, that, uh, that could possibly help you move along even quicker. Uh, You know, as we know, Marshall Goldsmith wrote a wonderful book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And the premise of that book was that there are people who work their way up into, you know, they might even work their way up into the C-suite by doing certain things, by having talent, by having raw talent, being able to work hard, being able to have one particular skill that really, and, and they think that what got them there 
to this point, what got them here is going to get them to the next level. What they don't realize is they got to that certain level of success despite some weaknesses of theirs, not because of those weaknesses. Okay. Yeah. So once a person understands this, that, that yes, I, I've gotten to a certain level doing this, but this is not going to get me to that next level of success. Once they accept that, now they're ready to change. I like that. So I'm, I'm at this interesting space right now as we're having this conversation where I'm making a, a very big assumption and I want to test this assumption. Uh, but I first want to ask you to share. So you have five secrets of genuine influence. Mm -hmm. I have this assumption. I'm going to share it as soon as I hear what these five kind of secrets okay. are. If you can take us through the five secrets, then I want to share what this assumption is that I've been oh, sure. making over the last... I don't know, 60 seconds or so. <laughs> okay. Well, the first one is to, to master your emotions, control your emotions, because that's where it begins, right? It's only when you're in control of your emotions and control of yourself that you're even in a position to take a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. Now, I think we all know this, Kyle. I mean, yeah. You know, and yet how often yeah. do we allow someone to push our buttons, our emotional hot buttons based on what they say or do? And, and we make ourselves frustrated or helpless or irritated or angry. And we say or do that very thing that we know is counterproductive to what we're looking to accomplish. And, you know, the question is, well, if we know, why do we do it? Well, because we're human beings and we're emotional creatures. And while we'd like to think we're logical and to a certain extent, of course we are, we're pretty emotionally driven. We make major decisions based on emotion. We back up those decisions with logic. We rationalize, which means we tell ourselves rational lies. And, you know, we do this, it's not effective. So, so what we suggest to people is not to forego your emotions or even deny your emotions. That's not necessary. Uh, no, um, just master your emotions, make sure you're in control of them as opposed to they being in control of you. Or one, as one of the great leadership speakers and authors, Dondi Skumachi puts it, uh, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. So that's yeah. really, you know, that's the first one. Make sure that that you're the master of your own emotions. When you can work effectively within your, when you, when you can control your own emotions and help the other person to work effectively within theirs, now your influence is ready to really jump. Uh, yeah. The, well, oh, go so ahead. go ahead. Uh, well, you know. <clears throat> the thing I think is so fascinating about emotions, and I have a book coming out in 2019 that speaks similar to this, um, is emotions so often take you as an individual away from your goals. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about trying to influence someone else by understanding what their goals and intentions are. And yet, if you haven't mastered your own emotions, mm -hmm. you're not even going to be focused on your own goals oh, in that moment. Absolutely. And so how much less can you be, expect to be focused on someone else's goals or intentions? You well, know, sure. somebody... Right. I mean, I enter into a, a, a business negotiation or I enter into a conversation with an employee and I'm looking to build them up. I'm looking to develop them. I want to give them some feedback. And my genuine intention walking in is to build them up. And yet I give them some feedback and they react negatively. Right. They maybe say something they regret saying. They say something that triggers mm -hmm. me. And now that goal of building them up is gone because now as a leader, all I care about is proving them wrong, showing my authority, you know, making them regret what they said. And so this emotion is driving these goals that are so far away from what I came in to that situation focused on. Sure. Uh, and now 
you know, I'm saying I want to be an influential leader and yet I can't even stay focused on my own goals. Well, but you're also, you know, you're human. We're all, you know, we're all human and we can, we can practice these and we can really do a great job of retraining our brain to do this. And I'm sure you'll talk about that in your book. Um, and yet we're all human beings. So from time to time, we're still going to mess up, but what we'll do is we'll be on, on the mark on point, you know, 97% of the time and, you know, but we're never going to get it right all the time. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, so master emotions number one. What's number yeah, two? Well, number two, we we kind of discussed, and that is to step into the other person's shoes. In other words, okay. understand that there's a clash of belief systems, and so as long as you understand that, you can ask questions and listen in order to better understand that person. When you listen that way, what happens is this: uh, first, you do understand more. You actually have stepped into the. You, you put yourself in their shoes because now you do understand what's in their shoes. And you're able to to work with them more respectfully. You're able to work with them more productively. But the other person also is going to feel listened to. They're going to feel heard. And that, and that inspires trust. Number three, and this one's so important, and that is to set the proper frame or reset someone else's negatively set frame. Uh, very basically, a frame is the foundation from which everything else evolves. So if you set the proper frame, you're 90% of the way there to, to, the, to uh, accomplishing what you want. Uh, my, uh, very quickly, my favorite frame story happened several years ago, has nothing to do with business, but is probably the best business lesson that you can imagine. Uh, I was in a Dunkin' Donuts coffee shop, uh, in the coffee shop, uh, restaurant, and there was a little boy, a little toddler, about maybe two, two and a half years old, running around the restaurant. His parents called him over to the table. As he walks over to the table, he falls. He, he slips on the floor. He didn't hurt himself, but you could tell he was shocked and didn't know you know, what came next. And so he looked at his parents and I, I I totally believe Kyle that had the parents gotten upset, uh, had they, you know, Oh no, are you okay? He'd have started to cry. But what the parents Mm -hmm. did is they just handled it so beautifully. They, you know, they walked over quickly, but very calmly. They had just an air of serenity uh, about them. They smiled at them. They applauded. They laughed. They said, Oh, how fun. What a good trick. And immediately the little boy laughed. Now, what the parents did is they set a productive frame from which he could operate. Yeah. And that's a a huge difference maker. Uh, Number four is to communicate with tact and empathy. Uh, My dad has always defined tact as the language of strength. And I've always enjoyed that definition because to me, it takes a strong person. It takes a mighty person to, to not just quickly fire back that email, right? That, that where someone was insulting and you just fire something back or, you know, or to somebody says something and you just defensively react to it and you say, or, or on social media, when someone says something that you just really don't like to, but to be able to, to edit your to in that little nanosecond, right? To edit your speech before you speak, to, to think to yourself in that little nanosecond, is what I'm about to say going to help or hurt? Is it going to build? Is it going to destroy? Uh, tact is really a way of presenting an idea to someone, communicating an idea that they normally, you know, possibly wouldn't like, but doing so in such a way that not only is that person uh, not defensive toward you and resistant to your idea, but they're open to you and they're more accepting of your idea. 
Yeah. And, you know, then the last one is to um, let go of having to be right. And this is something, you know, people hear this, they, they laugh because we all, you know, we're human beings again, and we all have this need to be right. And we see so often today that people, especially when it comes to politics or something, you know, they, they get an idea and they just, you know, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. You know, they don't want to to look and see that there's maybe another way. But really, uh, when letting go of having to be right, we don't mean you don't want to be right, of course. Uh, we want to we want to be right. We're going to prepare to be right. We're going to do. But what it means is we let go of the attachment to having to be right or 100% right. It means we open ourselves up to another idea. That doesn't mean we have to agree with it, but we open ourselves up and we go into learning mode Instead of just being, you know, uh, immutable when we really don't even have all the facts, which, you know, we see so often when you do this. Now, what what that will do is first, again, you go into learning mode. So it actually puts you into the position of knowing more, of having more knowledge. But when that other person sees that they're dealing with someone who's not just looking to be right at all costs, who's not looking to be right by making them wrong. Well, now, again, that trust happens and they're they're more open to you and to your ideas and they're much more likely to allow you to influence them. Absolutely. Well, and as you were talking about having to be right, uh, I just think how often that's just a facade anyway. This idea that that I'm actually going to be right, I'm only going to be right in most of these emotional situations, according to me. Sure. The other person's not not walking away saying, oh, they were right if it was an emotional situation, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so a lot of times this idea of having to be right is only proving to ourselves something, making me feel better about you know the poor behavior I just demonstrated because at least I was right in my poor behavior. Uh, when nobody else in this situation is walking away saying, oh, yeah, he was he was totally right about that. Uh, well, you think about of- it, you know, on social media, when someone says something and the other person disagrees, the other person says people like, you you know, they type back people like you are the, you know, rottenest people. You don't care about people. You, you know, want to destroy this country, blah, blah. You know, does the person ever like write back and say, wow, thank you so much for pointing out the error of my ways. I <laughs> hadn't thought about it that way before. But, you know, now that you put it that way. Right. No, of course. Not. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course not. Well, so in hearing these five kind of elements, uh, one of my assumptions, and this is just broadly around leadership, one of the things that I get frustrated by is this idea that there is a way to be a leader. Like I have to be like Jack Welch, or I have to be like Jeff Bezos, or I have to be like an insert, whoever you want, who you think is a great leader. And that's the way to be a great leader. And I get frustrated by this element of that there's some sort of cookie cutter or some sort of um, replicable character that makes a good leader versus things that are just about me finding myself in how I do this. So what you laid out were five steps that are not about a prescriptive approach to influence, but are about how do I find myself in this process? Mastering emotions isn't going to look the same exact way for every person who steps in. There's not a prescription. Here's how everybody's going to do this in order to do it right. It's no, find yourself in how you master emotions. Some people need to kind of de-escalate their emotions. They need to bring them down a notch. 
other people may need to actually escalate their emotions. They may need to, they may be too far on the other side of the mm -hmm. spectrum where they're not emotional enough and they can't mobilize people because they're not actually leveraging emotion and they're too intellectual or as you you know talk about they're too rational um, and it's not getting people engaged in it. And so what I like about the approach and I'm glad that it went this direction is that it's not a prescriptive process. It's not it, it, while it gives guidelines and I'm sure there are some guardrails that say, hey, you know, if you want to stay in this space, it's going to help you a lot more. But it's not prescriptive in that everybody's going to look the same coming out of these five things as somebody else. Right. Well, I think you make a great point on that, because I think if there's one thing we've seen is that is is that you don't have to lead like Jack Welsh. <laughs> you know, you don't have to lead like Herb Kelleher and you don't have to lead like uh, uh Bob Chapman, who, you know, has, he wrote a, a wonderful book called Everybody Matters. He's the, Bob is the uh, chairman and CEO of a, a St. Louis-based manufacturing company called Barry Waymiller, which has tens and tens of thousands of employees and factories all over the, uh, and manufacturing plants all over the world. And you, and you talk about, you know, a commodity-based product, which is what they, what they, they deal in. And you think this is a typical, uh, you know, uh, command and control type of thing. Absolutely not. I mean, he absolutely, uh, sees his employees, his team members as family members. They feel that way. They're treated as such. It's, it's the environment of leadership that permeates his uh, company. Simon Sinek even wrote about him in Simon's wonderful book, Leaders Eat Last. Although I had actually okay. read Bob's book, I knew of Bob first before I even read Simon's great book. Both of those are wonderful books. But um, so, yeah, it, you know, so you've got totally different leadership styles. And yet, you know, all, all of these people, very effective leaders. Right. So there were a couple of things when we were prepping for this podcast that came out, and I want to make sure that I that I get to them because they definitely have piqued my interest. So one is that you say there's one sentence that is guaranteed to prevent misunderstandings. Yeah, this goes back to belief systems, uh, which was you know part of uh, secret, you know, uh, secret with air quotes because they're really not secrets, right? Uh, uh, which which uh, is to step into the other person's shoes, uh, understand their belief system. It, it's it's let's say and let's just take a, an example. Uh, there's a, a small work team within a company, and the team leader gathers everyone around on Monday morning and says, "Hey, this uh, uh, this project is uh, of the uh, Jones Company." Uh, it things have changed. We, we've got to get it done as soon as everyone needs to have you work in as soon as possible. OK, everybody goes, OK, now it's Wednesday afternoon, five o'clock. Uh, the team leader gathers everyone around. Only one person has their their work done. Well, why is that? What happened? Well, the one person has been working with this team leader for a while and knows that when the team leader says as soon as possible, it means you drop everything. You've got a couple of days to get it done. Another person on the team was with another another part of the company as soon as possible there meant, uh, you know, finish what you're doing and then get to this new thing after that. The other person on the team came from another company, was on a team where as soon as possible meant absolutely nothing. You gave it lip service and kept doing what you were doing. So you had uh, one, one phrase as soon as possible, and you had four, uh, three different definitions for it. Okay. So yeah. if you want to make sure if, if let's say one of the team members was, was on their game, they might've said to the, the team member, Hey Pat, 
just for my own clarification, and that's that's using tact, just for my own clarification, uh, when you say as soon as possible, is there a specific day or time you're looking at? And then Pat would have said, uh, yes, end of day, Wednesday, five o'clock. Now there would have been one term and there would have been one definition. Now the question might be, well, why didn't Pat, the team leader, say that from the beginning? Well, I don't know. Why do people not uh, communicate clearly? They just don't. Because Pat expects that what what Pat sees as as soon as possible is what everybody else understands as as soon as possible but it's not. So what we need to do in order to avoid misunderstand unnecessary misunderstandings like that is to simply ask the person, again, tactfully, ask them to define their terms. When you say so-and-so, you know, just for my own clarification or to make sure that I'm on, you know, on time or to make sure that I get this right. When you say X, you know, could you tell me exactly what you mean or what do you mean by or, or what have you? Oh, that's great. I, you know, I've used that same thing. And, and you talked at the very beginning about really liking definitions. Right. And I think that's so key, right? Getting people on the same page. And I've used the same thing. So I do a lot of strategy work with organizations. And we'll have leaders that come up with a strategy. And they think it's really clear because they've spent two or three days talking about it and defining it. And then when they go to share it with their organization, they turn it into something like great customer experience. And yet when the employee is receiving that, they don't have the three days of discussing it and identifying and talking through what that actually means. And so to your point, they may have four different employees hearing great customer experience and all interpreting that exactly, exactly. And then you run into this issue where, you know, they all four think they're doing it. They all four think they're doing it the same way, right? Or they think they're doing it the right way. And yet they've all interpreted it differently, right? If I came from Walmart, how I interpret great customer experience may be that the customer is always right. Versus if I came from Nordstrom's or Starbucks, I interpret that differently. Yeah. You know, most conflict is the result of two or more people seeing the same thing from totally different viewpoints. And that's why it's so important to to define, to to start, to check your premise, to always start from the same foundation. Yeah, I love that. So I think that's a great takeaway for for folks. There's one more thing I just want to touch on, uh, and it, it, again, it's just because it really piqued my interesting or my interest. But you say that there are eight keywords that will practically always move a person to your side of an issue. Yeah. Uh, and again, the context of this is, uh, let's say you're, you're dealing with someone who doesn't really have to come through for you, right? It would be nice if they did, but they don't really have to. It could be that person in another department, another silo, another, you know, what have you that, that you need some help with from, or you need a report from, or you need something and yeah, they could help, but they don't really, or it could be the difficult customer service person who doesn't have to do this, or it could be that bureaucrat, you know, somewhere. So what you do is, is, and again, assuming that you've, you've been polite, you've been patient, you've been courteously persistent, assuming that you've, you've, you've utilized these five uh, principles we've been talking about. Okay. And the person, you know, has, has moved from, from, from being difficult to now kind of wanting to help, uh, but still kind of ambivalent. And, and the eight words would be this. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. Okay. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. What you've done is you've, you've let them know that you, 
you yeah, sure you hope they will do it, you believe they can do it, but by the same token, if it is beyond their control, if it's absolutely something they can't do, that you honor them more than just the situation itself and that it ultimately is okay. What you've done is what I call giving them an out or a back door, that emotional escape route, because most people will only fight back when they feel cornered. But when they feel as though there's that emotional escape, that, let's put it this way, my what I call Berg's law of the out or back door simply says the bigger the out or back door you give someone to take, the less they'll feel the need to take it. So again, it's simply, if you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. Now, what you want to do is then wait a few moments. If you have to, you may not even have to, but if you have to wait a few moments and then say, if you could, I'd certainly appreciate it. And you could probably hear the smile on my face and that's how you need to say it. So you may not even have to say those, those, that second group of words. It just, if you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. But if you feel you need to wait a few moments and then if you could, I'd certainly appreciate it. That's nice. I like that a lot. I like, again, you know, the, just the frame of really trying to understand the other person, really trying to give them or make it easy for them Mm -hmm. to want to, to exactly be a part of what you're doing. When to your point, if you, we haven't given them this backdoor, we're actually making it harder for them Mm -hmm. to be a part of what we're trying to do. Exactly. This is really great stuff. I'm excited actually to pick up a copy of your book. Um, I hope that the listeners will pick up a copy of your book. <clears throat> if they want to to follow kind of your journey, if they want to get more of this, where are the places that they should go? Probably the best place is uh, The Go-Giver without the hyphen, thegogiver.com. And they can scroll down and, and uh, they can... Uh, get the first couple of chapters of any of the books in the Go-Giver series. And uh, then if they like what they see with that, they can always click through to get the whole book. Absolutely. So we will share that uh, as part of the podcast. We'll share the gogiver.com, a link to it. So listeners, you can go check out a couple of chapters. And then if you like what you're seeing, if you've liked what you've heard, obviously go pick up the book. And uh, to Bob's point, there's a whole series around the go-giver, not just influence, but leadership that you can pick up um, to dive into some of these concepts. If you could leave the audience with one last note, what would it be, Bob? Well, you know, I... um... I remember this is, and this is close to 40 years ago now. It was soon after I started in sales and I had, you know, I had learned sales and, and was a student of sales and I was doing pretty well, but uh, not to the point that I really should have at that point. And I remember coming back to the office one day after a disappointing sales call and one of the, the guys who worked there, he wasn't in sales, but he was one of those sort of wise, older people who they didn't say much, but when they did, you know, it was going to be profound. And he said, can I, he said, Berg, can I give you a a piece of advice? And I said, sure, please. And he said, you know, if you want to make a lot of money in business, actually, he said, if you want to make a lot of money in sales, he said, don't have making money as your target. Your target, he said, is serving others. When you hit the target, you'll get a reward. That reward will come in the form of money. And uh, you can use that money however you'd like, but never forget, he said, the money is simply the reward for hitting the target. It ain't the target itself. Your target is serving others. 
And that made a huge difference for me because what it told me is that whether we're talking about sales or leadership or influence or anything else, when we can move from an I focus or me focus to an other focus, looking for ways to bring value to another human being, we really create the environment where that person feels good about us. They know us, they like us, they trust us, they want to do business with us, be a part of our lives. Uh, what have you. Well, so my listeners will hear that and they'll know that that is extremely aligned with my approach. Uh, obviously, I run a, a firm that is solely committed to doing good. Um, and so to hear that just reinforces and reiterates a message that I continually send, which is make sure that you're focused on the right things, mm -hmm. on doing good for people and by people and uh, and serving where where it's needed. Not just where you, you know, uh, where you think you can get something out of it, serving where it's needed. So I love that. Genuinely appreciate your time, Bob. Oh, I love the insights that you've shared. It's been a wonderful conversation. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction. Remember, go check out thegogiver.com. You can access more of Bob's insights um, and obviously get a hold of his book that, uh, that he's released in, in the series and check it out. Thanks again, Bob. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.